Welcome, welcome. You're listening to our podcast, Two Massage Therapists in a Microphone. My name is Mark. I'm a registered massage therapist, registered kinesiologist here in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. We fucked up the first time. I fucked up the first time. I got this mixer thing, and you know what? It. Uh, I've got it recording onto the computer, got it recording onto the mixer. I didn't hit record on the mixer, but I hit record on the computer. Whole fucking scenario. <laughs> but let's take two on this. We have an awesome guest sitting in, where are you? In your house, in your office? What is that? Yeah, it's my, my home office, really. Um, I just basically threw a... Uh, a desk um, in kind of a little cor- corner room in the house. Right and, on. Uh, right behind me, you can see that's a bar. Nice. A bit too early for it to open up the bar. And then I got like my bookshelf and stuff behind me as well. So Right on. We have uh, we have Eric RMT from BC on our Zoom today. And Eric is one of the presenters at the B3 conference. And if you haven't already heard about the conference, you are behind and you need to check it out. Um, Conad Institute, two RMTs and a mic, and Connor Collins from the Concast. Um, we've all partnered up and we are putting on a two-day conference with all proceeds going to Food Banks of Canada. So it's a minimum $20 Canadian donation to get access to the con- uh, the conference. And we've got some amazing speakers lined up. Eric is one of them. So we've got Eric Purvis. He's going to be presenting Sunday, March 28th, 1.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And his topic of discussion is going to be clinical pain science for RMTs. So if you are not really of the pain science world and don't really know what that means and how it applies to you, this is a talk that you're going to want to check out because whether you have any idea what it is or have any interest in what it is, it affects all manual therapists. And um, in take one, I did say that I, I won't I'm not somebody that knows a ton about pain science, meaning I haven't really done a lot of research. I haven't read a lot of research articles, but I'm really interested to learn from Eric because he's super passionate about this and has been um, you know, doing this type of research for a long time and has a master's degree from uh, from UBC. Yeah, is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Oh, cool. So uh, before we get started on our take two, I'm going to have Eric introduce himself, um, you know, a little bit about how long you've been practicing, how long you've been doing research in clinical pain science and why you're so passionate about this. Yeah, thanks. I'm really happy to be here, guys. I appreciate you uh, having me on your show. Uh, Yeah, so I've been an RMT since uh, 2000. I graduated in 2005 uh, out here in Victoria, BC. Uh, I pursued my master's. I I think I enrolled in 2015, 2016, something like that. And uh, I I graduated a couple years ago. I did a rehab science degree at UBC. Uh, yeah. So my, why, why this is a big question and, and it's hard to, yeah. Yeah, it's hard to, 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 summarize quickly. You don't have to summarize it quickly, by the way, you can take your sweet time here. <laughs> Thanks Mark. <laughs> uh, I found that, um, clinically, um, what I was finding was a kind of a lot of the patients I was getting were, uh, were people that had chronic pain. Um, and I think a lot of this started because our neighbor in the building that we were, I first started practicing in was actually an interventional anesthesiologist. So he was somebody that was supposed to be a pain specialist and he was injecting people and he was giving them drugs and he was sending them off for procedures and all kinds of really invasive, aggressive things. And we would often see, or I would often see the kind of the aftermath of, of these, these individuals. And I started to realize that they were getting all this fancy treatments but they weren't getting any better. Mm. People were actually getting worse, it seemed, more often than not. And so I realized that kind of started getting me thinking like, what the hell is going on? This doesn't make sense, right? I'm I'm following this very biomedical, very tissue-based model of care that I learned in massage school. They had been emphasized in years and years and years of uh, continuing education courses, but things just weren't making sense. And so that had put a lot of doubts in my mind. And it wasn't until uh, my wife, 
uh, in 2010 had her own kind of bout of uh, chronic pain um, from a fall and an injury she sustained uh, that resulted in kind of permanent um, uh, nerve damage in, in one of her legs that it really started getting me questioning everything that I thought I knew. So I just started reading. I started asking questions. I started, I uh, was exposed to a bunch of different Facebook groups. And I, I really very quickly realized that I knew nothing when it came to understanding pain. And so that led me to the first San Diego Pain Summit, which I believe was in 2015. And I went to that summit and it completely blew my mind. It just really confirmed everything that I was realizing. And uh, and then so as soon as I got home from that, I, uh, I put my application into UBC. and I was like, I need to learn more. And that kind of led me to doing research and reading and starting to teach, um, started doing my own content stuff to try and get this information out to the masses because it felt like a big, big hole in uh, pretty much healthcare education was really understanding pain in a way that is um, helpful. Okay. So I'm going to do my very best to try to word this question. And I know you said you could talk about this for hours and hours and hours, and mm -hmm. that's cool because I really want to understand, and I'm sure there's other people who really want to understand, like once you started doing research into understanding pain, I guess this is a two-part question. First, what, what sort of major aha moments did you have or major discoveries that made you realize what you thought you knew about pain isn't quite accurate. Yeah, because because this is like 10 years going, right? You graduated yes. in 05 and you went back to school and the, the San Diego Pain Summit is like 10, 10 years later. So what's happening in this period? But go ahead. Yeah, so I, I just want to know sort of what made you realize like, oh, like shit, that's like sort of a missing piece of the puzzle that you didn't understand before. And the second part of that would be then how does it how does it change your practice as a manual therapist once you have a better understanding of pain? Yeah. Uh, okay. So the first, uh, the first question um, was what was my kind of like the big, like big learning moment. Yeah, the, the, thing light, that, the light bulb. The light bulb. The light bulb. Yeah. So the first thing that for me was um, realizing that things like uh, purely biomechanical and tissue based reasoning for pain is not, accurate. That makes sense. Yeah. So we had, at least when I was in school and I still see this all the time in the courses, I teach people that are coming out now, depending on where they went to school are very focused on like, if I can provide the specific technique to the right tissue and I can fix your pain, that mm. tends to be the, this very linear relationship. So things like posture and biomechanics and, and all the, and, and, you know, fascia and connective tissue and trigger points and all these things that are very fundamental to what we do in our profession. Those things on their own are incomplete for really understanding pain. I'm very happy you worded it that way. Those things on their own. Yeah. Because this has always been, you know, as we said in the the take one that nobody's going to hear, but oh, hear there's it. always been <laughs> this, um, you know, back and forth with people who are very heavily into pain science and understand the research and, and pay attention to what's going on in that world. And then there's people who are very, you know, biomechanical. And as you said, think about things very in a more linear fashion. Then there's this argument, you know, somebody from the pain science world might say, you know, posture doesn't affect pain. Okay, that's 
that's true to an extent and not true to an extent. But what you just said, it makes a lot more sense that we can't just look at somebody's posture and say, well, that's what's causing your pain because there's somebody else that has shittier posture and they're not in any pain. Exactly. And I think that's a really important distinction. I think this, that type of discussion is, is what is missed often in these like social media conversations. Exactly. It becomes this us versus them mentality. Mm -hmm. I'm right. You're wrong. And then these people like butt heads and it really goes nowhere and it doesn't help the, the, it doesn't further the narrative and it doesn't help people understand. So the stuff that I'm really like the, the, where I've come around over the years of understanding this is that everything has its place, but we we can never say one thing Mm -hmm. is causative of the other. Exactly. And that's the big issue and that people will identify often our profession is like, I am this type of practitioner. And that's for you insert your favorite acronym. And you're like, this is what I do. And that is the lens through which they see every client. That's, I mean, I'm kind of stereotyping there, but like you, that's, that's common. Right. And we've all, we've all seen that. Absolutely. And you're like, and, there, and I always like to say, well, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that technique or that approach, but that's only one piece. So maybe we need to think more globally so it's more than just the the tissue or the mechanics because we know that you don't need to fix those things for people to get better and i put fix in quotation marks because we don't actually fix anything right but that's the kind of narrative that gets that gets thrown out there and there's a second part to your question but i totally forgot (laughs) yeah the second part was once this light bulb went off when you realized okay it's not just mechanics that are affecting pain and there's so many other facets which i assume you're going to go into a little bit more then how has it in the last uh, you know, decade or so, how has it changed your practice? Yeah, I think I get this question often when when people when I talk to people. And if you if you looked, so say you had a say you put me in a glass room with a patient and you observe from the outside, but you couldn't hear anything, you could just see, mm-hmm. it wouldn't look that much different than what anybody else does in our profession. And there's the second source of the headbutting, right? <laughs> you guys are doing yeah. the same things we are, but like it's not us versus them. I had this conversation with Walt Fritz before exactly. about this. And because we had him on the podcast way back when, when we first started and he was nice enough to say, yeah, I'll come on. That's probably before he knew what kind of, <laughs> kind of dead Stop it. Dead Walt's part of the B3. But, but, <laughs> anyway, anyway, and then he was talking about his move away from very traditional myofascial release stuff that he was doing with John Bards and everything else. And then I, I, I pretty much asked him, I'm like, well, tell me what you do. Like, what are you doing with your hands that's so different? And he said exactly the same thing. He's like, if 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 the volume was turned down and you were watching very traditional myofascial release stuff and you watch what I was doing, it's pretty much the it's same the thing. the same, right? right? So it's not about the technique necessarily, Eric. Then then what is yeah. it about? What's, what's different from what you're doing than maybe what I'm doing? Or maybe I'm doing the same thing as what you're doing and I just don't know it. You are. And that's exactly what I was just going to say is I think oftentimes a lot of us are doing this stuff, but they just don't realize what they're doing. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's a simple way uh, of, of thinking about it. But I would say that the biggest change is kind of my expectations and my thought processes and my communication with my patients. That's key. So I don't like if someone comes in and they say they've got, you know, chronic low back pain, I am no longer going to spend, you know, an inordinate amount of time assessing the heck out of them, trying to find the specific joint or the specific tissue that is the source of their pain. What I'm going to do though with them is I'm going to try and normalize their experience through, you can normalize their experience through assessment or or through movement. Um, You're trying to basically just provide reassurance that pain is normal, right? So you want to validate their experience. You want to reassure them that pain is normal and you want to provide a treatment that feels good to the patient. Whereas before, oftentimes a lot of us in our profession would do this kind of search and destroy thing. 
I'm going to find your thing and I'm going to release it. And then therefore you're going to get better. I did that for years and it's, you kind of get, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. You remember your successes. You don't remember your failures. Mm -hmm. So what I try and do now, I try to think more of like, well, if I'm having success with somebody or I'm having failures with somebody, when I understand pain, it kind of puts it all into context. So I, 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 you realize that you can't help everybody all the time, but you can, at the very least, I can't make people worse. Right. I like that you were saying too, this search and destroy. I've actually never heard that that uh, said before, search and destroy. I have a relatively new client that I've, I've seen her maybe five times at this point, and she's dealing with chronic, um, like lower T-spine pain. And it's, it's very specific. Where the pain is, is very specific. And she's been dealing with this now. I want to say she said two years. I'd have to go back and look at the notes, but she's been to multiple practitioners and she said, you know, unfortunately, I go to these people and they everything they say sounds great. You know, we're going to do this. We're going to do this. And she said, a lot of times, though, nobody's actually working on the area of my pain. You know, she goes, I understand that you guys are all trying to figure out why I'm in pain and and fix that exactly as you said, fix it. But she said, but nobody's actually providing any relief for the area of my pain. And so I've seen her a handful of times. And the last time I saw her, it really boiled down to she just wanted me to work on the area of pain. She's like, I understand that might not be what I want, but can you just like just work on this area? It hurts so much. And so I said, okay, let's do that. And that's what we did. And I got an email from her just thanking me. She's like, you know, I I only got maybe about two days of relief, but thank you for just doing that and not trying to find the cause because I've been going through this for two years and everybody just keeps sort of avoiding this area to figure out why it hurts. And that's that's weird to me that, I mean, that's, that's, I mean, not weird to me that you got success. I mean, it's great that you got success, but the fact that she would see all those people and nobody would actually address her concern is weird to me. It is weird. I Like I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know the story, but that, that doesn't really make a lot of sense because I would say that like from what I've understood and and I never, I'm not an expert. I, I'm the first one to say it. I just spend a lot of time nerding out with stuff. So when I teach and talk about pain science, it's just my interpretation of, of the science. Mm-hmm. And so other people might read the exact same things and might interpret it differently because that's how we view things and how we interpret things is, is our own kind of lens. Right. So, uh, but from what I understand and and from what I've learned is that why, like you're not going to do any harm. If she's had chronic pain in that area for a long time and she wants you to touch that area. And if you can provide some type of manual or movement intervention that relieves it, then that's what you should be doing. Mm -hmm. That just makes sense because she has some type of input or something coming from that area that's bugging her. Well, let me clarify. It's not that no therapist ever touched the area. It's that when they would work in that area, they're not finding any reason that that hurts. So it's like, well, let me check here. Let me look here. Maybe it's your hip. Maybe it's your shoulder. Maybe it's your abdomen. You know what I mean? And so she got to a point where she said, you know, everyone's just trying to figure out the problem, but I just want you to deal with this. This is what bothers me. This is what I need right now. And I was like, okay, well then that's what we'll do. Yeah. So her problem is pain. Her that's her, that's her. Yeah. And so why would you not just treat the pain? Right. That, that's the way I would see that. Like, cause if we, cause what it sounds like what everyone else is happening, we've all done this. And then and I'm the first one to admit I've, I've done this. I've made lots of mistakes and I've learned from my mistakes. And like I tell my kids, when we make mistakes, they're learning moments. Uh, and, and is, is, is that that's constant search, right? So these other people are searching for something to fix. Oh, and I was right? searching so for some reason. 
There's yeah. going to be some reason why your back hurts. Yeah, I was searching for it too because yeah. I agreed with them. Like, it will just, yeah. just doesn't make any sense. Like, you're yeah. you're young, you're healthy, you're in good shape, you work out. What like what is going on here? She's had imaging done, and there's you know nobody can find anything. But when yeah. it boiled down to it, Mark and I had a discussion one day. You know, I brought this sort of example to him, and he mm. said, "Just do what she says to do. Just yeah. try that. Just do what she says because." Nobody was doing what she said to do. And I was like, you're right. Let me just do what she tells me to do. <laughs> if this is what's going to help her, cool. And that's a really important thing too, actually, when, when like, because you asked earlier about like pain science and what is it, how does mm-hmm. it change, what, what, how you practice. And that, that's a really important thing actually is um, like that patient-centered care is, is that you're not going to do any harm by giving somebody what they want. If that is, you can try it and see if it works, right? Like, when we take this kind of biopsychosocial kind of pain sciencey kind of view of, of people, which my bias says we should all at least appreciate, we should all we all do this, but I think we could all do it better as a as a profession. Um, is I think we just we need to we need to focus more on the just focus more on the human in front of you mm-hmm. and and kind of find out what they want because their expectations their their wants their needs their desires for treatment and for outcomes we should base the treatments on what they are looking at and then we kind of we try and work with them to apply like a treatment plan or to provide interventions or to provide advice based on what they want first right so we put the patient in control. And then we try and bring the science, our own experience to the mm-hmm, patient. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like Cause that. oftentimes you'll see, well, the science is first and then we got to apply the science. We got to drive that science to the patient. Right. But I think we should put the patient first and then try and work with them to provide the science. Right. These are all equal pillars here. Yep, exactly. Yeah. And you're right. I think a lot of therapists are doing this and they just don't realize they just that's don't what realize they're doing. It, right? they, 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 they don't. And then when they're met with, with titles like pain science and biopsychosocial, they're like, uh, what, huh? But then if they were to actually break it down, they're like, oh, well, this is actually what I've been doing for however long. Mm-hmm. But I did li- I like how, I like how you said that, how, you know, let the patient drive what's happening there. Like I would just, I just finished editing one of the podcasts we did that was you know, one of the first recordings for the season four, but that happened. Anyway, Marie's one of the pieces that she said when I was editing, it really stuck out to me. She's like, the client is the boss of my hands. And I was like, Ooh, I like the way you said that. Clients is the boss of my hands. The boss. <laughs> I don't have a boss. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, and it, it comes back to something we've discussed as well that, you know, as a healthcare practitioner, yes, we understand the science and yes, we understand, um, you know, the clinical outcomes and we've seen things before and we've got the expertise to bring to the table, but we just can't, you know, let our egos overshadow the fact that there's a patient who is a person in front of us and what are they dealing with? What do they need from us? And so, I mean, this is all making a lot of sense to me because that is the way that I try to practice, you know, is making sure that the person in front of me is getting um, their expectations met in some way and that we're working together. I'm not just saying, this is what's going on with you. This is what you need, you know, get on the table and let me work. That that doesn't make any sense at all. No, it doesn't make sense to, to most of us. I, I think the, the key though with these things is, is the, um, really having the, the, the confidence as a therapist to know what your limitations are. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the, the big thing too, that I see often um, is I see people that become reliant on treatment. Well, I have to go in for treatment every week or every two weeks. Otherwise my back is going to fall apart or otherwise I'm going to get, I'm going to flare up. And so people become like, they feel like they have to come and see you all the time. Um, you know, 
if you are the only intervention that helps and that's what they have to do for years and years and years, then I think that as a profession, we're not necessarily doing the best of our abilities. I know that can ruffle some people's feathers because some people get upset. They're like, well, my whole practice, I'm full. I'm fully booked for months and months in advance because I'm so great. Well, I'm sure you are great, but what are the reasons people are coming in? Are people coming in just because you're part of their wellness plan and they like you? Great. If somebody's coming in and they're suffering and they're debilitated with pain and they can't work or they can't get on and do things that are important in their life and they and the only thing they can do is come see you and they've been doing that for years. And I think that's when we need to really stop and reevaluate, okay, well, what, what's happening? Why, why are you coming in as much as you are? Yeah. And I think we need to differentiate this from somebody who, you know, like you said, if someone's suffering, that's one thing. Um, if somebody's coming in for regular maintenance, you know, let's say it's somebody who's a runner and they know that, you know, they, their body functions most optimally if they get some sort of manual therapy, you know, every three weeks. Fine. That's right. fine. Yeah. It versus somebody who's coming in all the time and there's zero improvement. You know, like they might feel good for the moment that they're getting a massage and then there's zero improvement. However, as somebody with chronic pain <laughs> sitting in front of me, he will tell you as a patient, Sometimes that's all he wants. Yeah. So, I mean, we, we almost can't have it both ways. We can't put all of this on the patient to say like, well, your experience and your perception on things is really important to us. And this is part of getting better is for us to understand this and then shoot that down in the same sentence when I'm saying I suffer from chronic pain and this is the only thing that really brings me relief and this is what I need to do. This is what I feel I need to do. We also should validate that mm -hmm. as well. Like we can't just throw that under the rug. Yeah. And I think then sure. it's it comes down to like as the practitioner as Eric's saying understanding that you know have you have you referred out have you suggested other things or other therapies to right. somebody that you might think helps and that's and if the patient says I've tried it well, all and it. I don't give that's, a shit that's part fine. of that's part of understanding the exactly. patient experience right for me I have no desire to do anything else but go get a treatment whether it's massage therapy physiotherapy chiropractic whatever the case is get my little bit of feel good I've got my feel good window I go do my thing and then when it's bothering me again this is what I go back and do I'm okay with that and I understand all the options available to me and everything else and this is the path that I wish to pursue and then when i'm in that though what i really don't want is a therapist telling me everything else under the sun go do this go do that i'm like fuck off this is what i'm here <laughs> this is what i'm here for can you I've please not tell your therapist to fuck off well, it hurts our feelings <laughs> it, it happens it's happened before it sounds horrible I'm, I'm too aggressive i'm gonna stop talking you are too aggressive <laughs> i think that's a really that's a really important distinction to make that mark and that's the thing that often gets lost in these conversations is is that having that conversation with your patient about what is, are they okay with coming in this often, mm -hmm. right? Is this providing them the relief and the things that they need? Mm -hmm. Yes. Then keep going. And I have patients that I do that. And I also have the, the, what Amanda said is, is the, the, the kind of maintenance person who's like, you know what? I'm physically active. I like coming to see you every two, three, four weeks. It makes me feel good. Great. But then there's the other ones, those ones that just keep coming in because they feel they have to exactly. and they're suffering. Yeah. Right. So you can, I mean, I don't like to categorize, but like if we're talking about this conversation, we have to have those conversations with people so they understand and we understand that what it is that they're looking for and what it, how this is benefiting them. When we understand pain and we understand the patient experience and we understand kind of all the biopsychosocial uh, influences that can impact somebody, we need to start understanding and having those conversations with people because. One thing that I always find happens has happened many, many times, not as much anymore, but people would, um, you'd get these, these, these new patients would come in. They're like, oh yeah, I went to see my massage therapist. I was going twice a week for the last three years. 
I'm like, oh, okay. And how is that working for you? Well, I'm still in pain. Hmm. Okay. Do you like coming in that often? Well, no, because I feel like I'm spending all my time going for coming for appointments, but I told me I had to come in. Otherwise I was going to get worse. Right. Oh, that's the kind of person where you're like, okay, this person doesn't want to come in and see me all that often. Right. So how can I help them get better? Exactly. Versus somebody who's like, you know what? I love coming in to see you. This is great. You know, you're keeping me going. I'm happy to come in to see you. Okay. Well then you have that conversation. Like mm-hmm. Mark said, where it's like, just don't talk to me. Just give me what I want. And it keeps me going. Right. Even don't talk to me is nicer. <laughs> 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 Sorry, Eric. I know I'm being so ridiculous right now. It's because Mark and I did uh, some personality tests last night and it was, the quiz was, are you difficult to get along with? And I said to him before we started, I said, I know what's going to happen. What? I'm going to get, I'm easy to get along with and you're going to get difficult. And I'm that's exactly what was, happened. Know and what you know was. what the reasons were? Number one, he's too aggressive. Aggressive. What am, what am I high on? Aggressive. Risk taking is actually higher than aggressiveness. Yeah, he's too aggressive. And yeah, I don't know why being a risk taker would make you difficult to get along with, I but know. I don't know. Maybe Calluses it's because you bring everybody well. else along Shit. for the ride. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but I got easy to get along with. Jeez. Okay. Good combination. <laughs> um, Eric, this is going to sound so ridiculous, but like I said, I, it's hard for me to even sometimes pose questions when I don't quite understand anything. Is there something that you think that a lot of therapists just don't understand about pain? So why don't we do this then? If someone is listening to this right now and they're like, I have no fucking idea what you guys are even talking about. I don't know the term <laughs> pain science. I Who is this Eric guy? What is something that every therapist that you feel is a good place to start with getting to know this pain science stuff. Where should someone start? The B3 conference. Uh, Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Visit my website. Um, No. Uh, I think, so some of the the easiest way to kind of get a basic understanding of some some pain science is there's two great resources. One of them obviously is the Explain Pain uh, book, which was written in 2003, I believe. So it's a bit outdated, but it's, it's a really easy read. Uh, another person that's really great, um, who I've learned a ton from is also, he was like a pioneer. The guy was like 30 years ahead of his time, uh, was Louis Gifford. And if you go to his website, I think it's like Louis Gifford aches and pains dot UK or something. Anyway, you just Google it. He's got great papers on there. Um, editorials, he even has a, a series of books that are really easy to read that basically puts the complicated aspects of pain into really easy to understand and apply um, ideas and applications. There's lots of, I mean, you could just go on, um, you just go on any of the social media groups too, right? Any of the, there's an exploring pain, science and meaning Facebook group, which has all kinds of discussions and resources on there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's all, there's all kinds. Of, I mean, I can send you guys some, some easy to read papers that are, there's all kinds of stuff out there, you know, but if, if there's one thing that I really, that we need to, people should know that they just don't really know. Mm-hmm. I would say that the focus needs to be an understanding It's basically focusing on the nervous system. When we're looking at pain, we have to think of it as a, as a nervous system dominant thing. So that could be the periphery, the spinal cord, the brain, mm-hmm. the, the science of pain, the neurophysiological processes in those areas are what, as far as we understand, are the things that kind of drive a person's pain experience. And when we know that when someone is suffering and someone is uh, in pain for a long time, and uh, it's more likely psychosocial factors that are that are uh, 
predictive of, of poor long-term outcomes than purely biological factors. Yeah. And like I said, I haven't, I haven't read a lot of research, but even just hearing you say that just makes a lot of sense to me. I remember um, when I got really interested in uh, treating prenatal clients, for example, it was after I myself had been pregnant and experienced all the things and sort of understand like what, you know, what this person's body is going through. And one thing I used to say to some of them, because, you know, they would ask me since either I had already had a kid or if, if, you know, when I was pregnant, they would ask me a lot of questions about labor and delivery and, you know, what are things I can do to get my body ready and et cetera, et cetera. And I remember having this conversation with a number of my clients saying, you know, I think a big a lot of women fear the pain that comes with labor and delivery. And I think that that fear is actually going to increase your pain. So if there's something we can work on is not trying to fight it, not being so afraid of it. And um, I know this sounds super hippie, but before my first, I decided to read up on like hypnobirthing and understanding how like to understand what's going on in my body and recognize that it's normal and it's supposed to, you know, it's supposed to be painful. Labor is supposed to be painful and not being so afraid of it and not trying to fight it. And um, honestly, I think it helped me cope a lot with my first labor and delivery is just understanding what's happening and how to work with it and not try to, you know, not be afraid of the pain, if that makes sense. Yeah, it was completely like it, it was all my mental state at the time. You know, if I was just like, OK, this is going to hurt, but it's fine. It's supposed to hurt then it was okay. Yeah. And that goes back to what we said earlier. I think we were talking about normalizing the experience, mm -hmm. right? We know that pain is an extremely normal thing um, that we all get. Uh, the only time it's, it's not normal, obviously, is if it persists for a long period of time. But yeah, I've heard that before from, from women um, in, in childbirth. And I know from my wife's own experiences that uh, depending on how you, your expectations and your fears and your anxiety about it, it, it seems to influence the um, your experience. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's the same thing. I think a lot of the stuff with, with pain too, is that, um, you know, say you gave a sensory stimuli to 10 different people, but you told them 10 different expectations and they had 10 different histories of receiving, uh, uh say an electric shock or, or some type of pain in the past. That's going to, that's going to impact how they experience that sensation. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is, I think a really important thing to understand with pain science is that, you know, the, that linear relationship between uh, peripheral sen sensory experience and their pain experience is, is not equivalent at all. Right. So why <laughs> you said the one thing we all need to know is to understand the nervous system. I don't disagree with you, but let's say there's, you know, somebody listening who's like, you know, yeah, I, I, I studied the nervous system. I understand, you know, what happens between, you know, some sort of like stimulus and, you know, what's happening with the nervous system. Why would you say that is the most important thing for us to really understand? Like, what are, are we missing a piece? Is there something that some sort of secret unlocking that um, <laughs> you can do for us? You've just signed up for my 11, level seven, uh, seven level mastery mentorship program where I'll teach you the secrets of unlocking the pain mysteries. Yeah. Uh, no, <laughs> uh, no, I think it's just, I think it's just incomplete. I think oftentimes, I mean, I know, um, how, like, so say the nervous system, we understand in, in, in school and I know people that have taught kind of neurophysiology and, and pain science out here in the West coast. And it's, 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 they learn all the, all the, the kind of nuts and bolts of it, but there seems to be the, the, um, there's a, the missing piece seems to be, uh, the interpretation and processing aspects of, of, of the, the, the nervous system. So let's just 
unwind that for a second. And so what we know is that our entire periphery, our entire environment of what's happening on the outside of our body, all that information comes in is filtered through our nervous system. So as a massage therapist, what's the organ that we are working on? It's the skin. What's, what ha, what is like, what are there millions and millions and millions of in the skin throughout the body is you've got receptors, which are providing information to your nervous system about what's happening in your periphery. That makes sense, right? We kind yep. of understand mm-hmm. that. Yep. That information then gets relayed to the spinal cord. And then that information then is filtered out. And if it's necessary, if it's important, then it's relayed up to the brain for the brain to make an interpretation of what's happening. So we can understand that process. But when we start looking at things like the, the nociceptors, which are kind of the danger receptors or the noxious receptors in the skin, and we start to realize that if we say someone's in a lot of pain, let's say they've got low back pain, for an example, and we start providing overly noxious stimuli to that area in their low back, what we're going to do is we're going to basically send a whole bunch of danger signals from that area to the spinal cord. What can happen then too is it doesn't take very long is that spinal cord can now become sensitized to more sensory stimuli that was no longer dangerous or that wasn't prior to dangerous, but now can feel more dangerous, be interpreted as being more dangerous than it really is. So the sensory inputs can be amplified. So what that means is that if somebody has, say, persistent pain in their low back and their everything hurts every time they touch it, every time they move it. And you go, a therapist go in there and try to do something overly corrective to try to, to, to uh, fix it, so to speak, with that mindset. And you do that with deep, aggressive techniques. You may be further sensitizing the area, which can then further cause further changes in the spinal cord, which might then send more danger signals to the brain. So what you're doing is you're basically taking something that's painful and you could be amplifying it, making it more painful. Right. Okay. That aspect is not always well understood. And I go into, when I teach, I go into way more detail about that. I'm trying to make it quick. And then what we have to understand too, is that we have to understand then when we get all these danger signals from the, the spinal cord and the periphery, and that goes to the brain, we have to start understanding then what are the associations being made between the brain and what's happening there. So you're getting the sensory input in the brain, but then also what's the assigned meaning behind that? What's the experience behind that? What's that? What's what, how is that impacting the person? What are their thoughts, beliefs, fears, ideas about that? And that stuff can then further um, sensitize the area. And we can actually, by trying to do well, we can actually potentially do harm if we don't really understand the interrelationship between kind of those three processes, mm-hmm. if that makes sense in a, in a quick kind of Coles notes version. Yeah, it makes sense. And I think that last piece is super important as well as understanding, you know, the meaning behind it, because that it's going to be different for all sorts of people. You know, there's people who say like, oh, I have a high pain tolerance. What does that even mean? You mm-hmm. know, like what's what's a uh, high pain tolerance to some is not to others. And, you know, understanding what's going on with your patient and where they're at is definitely going to have an impact on how they're perceiving what you're doing, what kind of interventions you're doing. So it makes a lot exactly. of sense to me. And like I said, I've been I've been practicing this way. I just didn't call it pain science. I think the big thing that we need to be careful of, too, is when we're talking about pain science, it's funny because it get, often gets used as like an action or like a verb, like I'm pain sciencing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, like it's like a thing you do. And it's and it's like if you're talking pain science, biopsychosocial, it's not a thing you do. It's just a, it's no. just an understanding. It's a, it's a exactly. framework for how we think. Yeah. So to use the, the example you said uh, when we talked about the low back, we go in the low back and and 
and you know we provide an aggressive treatment to try and fix it and then it can cause these you know sometimes short term sometimes longer term um sensory experiences and interpretations of the area which might make it more sore what we have to realize though is that for some people that stuff might work because it's everything is so subjective and that's why oftentimes when the, these these pain science conversations go nowhere because someone's like no you should never ever do that because you were going to you're going to make them worse and they're going you're going to ruin their life yeah. but we all can be like well I've done that before and it worked I don't know why it worked but whatever it is I did that experience what I did to that person helped them I think it's an important kind of it's it's gray right it's so uncertain yeah and what we, I mean manual therapy is it does have a huge subjective component to it mm-hmm. there's obviously objective things that we can see and what but a lot of what we do is hugely subjective so making sure that you're not you know putting everything into boxes makes a lot of sense you can't say that this technique works all the time for this condition no this technique worked very well for this person with this condition why at this time question mark like we we don't always know and i think that's another thing that might piss some people off is you hear the word science and you assume that everything is objective no this is not this is not saying that this is all objective it's like you said understanding what what factors are coming into play when it comes to somebody perceiving pain so that you don't just decide this is how we treat this condition there is no recipe for anything when it comes to what we do i would agree i would say when it comes to msk care it's there's no there's no there's no um i would say there's not a lot of rules that 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 are predictive of 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 uh, what what to do or what not to do. Perfect. We don't follow rules. It's like a clinical dance, right? I mean, it's it's like an art. The way I look at these, I mean, we use the science to help inform the art of what we do. Mm, I like that. I like that sentence. We use the science to help inform the art of what we do. I'm going to write that down. That is beautiful. That is beautiful. Well, thank you. <laughs> do you end up butting heads with anyone in your pain science community? Because I feel like you have a little bit of a wide, broad way of thinking about things and putting things together. Uh, not really. I tend to, like, I, I, I'm not very. Mm, He's easy no, to I get along with. Yeah, I don't really, <laughs> I don't really push things because the one thing I learned early on, and uh, you know, I was very fortunate. Um, I mean, you guys probably know who Lorimer Mosley is. He's the one that wrote Explain Pain. And mm-hmm. I've, I've been fortunate enough to, to meet him on, on, on several occasions. And the one thing he told me, I remember this, and I'll never forget this when I first met him. He said, never argue dogma with people because mm. you're going to miss the bigger picture. And I really like that because it really, like you can't, if I have strong opinions about something and you have strong opinions about something, I can't force you to take on what I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. Just like you're not going to, I'm not going to, if you try and force your ideas on me, it's not going to work, but maybe we can have a conversation about some bigger ideas like pain and, and, and kind of come to some kind of agreement about it. So I don't tend to push my ideas on people. I just, this is my interpretation. This is what makes sense to me. Uh, I think it makes sense clinically. Uh, I think if we start anytime we start jumping too hard into one camp, so to speak, and one way of thinking, we're missing the bigger picture. Absolutely. And there shouldn't be camps. You know, I've heard people, and I'm I'm so glad you said that because I've heard people say things like, you know, um, orthopedic tests, absolutely useless. In some circumstances, 
maybe orthopedic tests are not useful. And again, as the and as the practitioner, fabulous. and exactly, and as the practitioner, you have to be able to think your way through something and understand when a test is and isn't useful, and be able to interpret what that test is saying. You know, it's not like in school again, where it's very black and white. You do this test when you are suspecting this is the condition. This is what indicates positive. This is what's negative. No, you have to again take into account what has this person been dealing with. How you know how chronic is this pain? What other factors are at play? What you know, like there's so many things to think about. So you can't say either orthopedic tests are the be all end all or orthopedic tests are useless. It's neither. They're they're a tool to be used. They're exactly. uh, 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 yeah they they have use for sure. And I think <clears throat> I think the when we're looking at orthopedic tests, I think um, from the the research that I've understood is that. They're not useless, but they're they're better when you use them kind of like in clusters, series of them together, right? Yeah. But I think also too that when we look at what that what are they actually testing for, most of them are basically just provocative to say it hurts here. They're not always that predictive or that um, accurate in terms of diagnosing a specific structure, like we learned in like I learned in. That's, well, that's what I mean. Yeah, exactly. That's what yeah. I mean. It's, you can't say, okay, so this test did recreate pain. Therefore, it's positive. Therefore, the condition is tendonitis. Like, no, there's no. now we can zone in. Maybe it is this tendon that is causing this pain because and then you do a whole bunch of other things to try to figure it out, mm -hmm. including treatment yep. interventions. Did this work? Did it not? What, mm -hmm. Like, it's again, use just using your brain a little bit more. So I, I do like that you do have a wider lens, as Mark said, and you're not looking at this as us versus them. You know, I understand pain, so I throw biomechanics out the window or, or you know, somebody else who's, <laughs> yeah. I you know, I learned biomechanics, so pain science doesn't make sense. No, it, yeah. we have to use all of it. They're all tools and you need exactly. to have knowledge of all of it. If you want to be a well-rounded practitioner, if you don't give a shit, well, well I don't, I'm not even sure why you're in this field, but then who cares? I think we, I mean, as, as professionals, right, we have, we kind of have this ethical obligation, I think, to our patients and to our professional community uh, to be up to date as, mu as much as we can, right? To follow the evidence and to change as things change. Mm -hmm. You know, when I was in school, we, you know, and, and my first number of years of practice, there was, um, you know, there was a lot of focus on, um, we, we were learning things on like core stability and transversus abdominis activation for low back pain. And, and th those things, those ideas made sense at the time because that was kind of how we thought of things. Right at the time, that made sense because we figured, oh, you've got low back pain, the spine is unstable, you have, you know, your activation is 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 not um, um, is not where it should be. So therefore, like we are going to apply these interventions to try to fix that. And that at the time was what we thought. But now, as the research has progressed, we know that that's not necessarily the case. And that idea, we're like, we push it push it away and we can kind of look at that data and make more sense of it knowing what we know now. Yeah, absolutely. I remember sitting in a talk with um, Paul Check. I think it was with Paul Check, okay. And it was, it was a lot of what Eric was just saying, like talking about this transverse abdominis and this core stability and blah, yep. blah, blah. And it, it got to a point where I was, yeah, I was just sitting there like, I think it was maybe a 90 minute talk and I, I got maybe 50 minutes in. I mean, he's, he's a knowledgeable guy and I'm wrong. not, I'm not, yeah, exactly. He's not, he's not wrong. wrong. I'm not, not, I'm not putting accurate. him down, but after about 45, 50 minutes of listening to this, I was like, mm -hmm. okay, I got it. 
all right, I understand the yeah, transverse yeah. abdominis. Yeah. Can we talk about something else now? <laughs> yeah. well, that's the idea. He's he's not he's not incorrect. Right. He's not giving you incorrect information. It's just giving you a small piece of the whole puzzle, but he feels it's the whole. Right. And that's the importance of, you know, when you take any kind of continuing education courses, as both of you guys have said, it's just more tools. It's gaining more knowledge. There is a place for so many different things, but knowing when to use those those tools, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let me ask you a question. What was your undergrad in, just out of curiosity? Uh, I did psychology. And what was the, the time span between finishing your undergrad and going to MT school? Uh, it would have been... T- Two years, two and a half years. What'd you do in that time? Uh, yeah, I call that. <laughs> that's a good question. I I, <laughs> I call that my loafing period. Hmm. I did. I I graduated. I, I got my diploma or my degree um, on June seventh, two thousand one, from my undergrad, and then I jumped on an airplane the morning of June eighth with a backpack, and I flew to Europe, and I spent many many months kind of just wandering around the continents, um, trying to just enjoy life. And it was probably the, probably one of the best experiences I've ever had. Uh, I am so glad I got to do it because I knew that if I didn't do it, then I was never going to do something like that. If your children came up to you and said, Hey man, and cause that's how they talk to you when they, when, when they <laughs> yeah. get, when they, when they get to be this age that I'm going to say, when they get to be this age, they finish high school and they come up to you like, Hey man, um, that, you remember that Europe thing that you told me you did, but when you finish university, I, I want, I want to do that now. How about how about that? Uh, yeah, I would. Say, I got two daughters, so I'd be yeah, like, "There's yeah. no way, no way." How about how about when they finish university? Even though like they're 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 them asking you is really just a courtesy. I was gonna say yeah, when they finish <laughs> yeah. university. But, uh, but sorry, Dad, I'm the, going. What's the feedback on that? Hey, because hey, now you're like, hey, hey, man. No, now you're old yeah. man. Hey, old man. Um, <laughs> hey, old man. I fin- I finished my undergrad degree, and uh, I'm just gonna go kick around Europe for a little bit. What, 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 what say you, sir? Uh, you know what? I would, despite the fact that I would have a lot of reservations about it and I would be fearful uh, for them, I would, I, would, I, I would say do it. Just go and explore different cultures, see different parts of the world. It'll completely change your outlook on life. Mm, I like that. I like that too. It's something, it's interesting when I, I, I've talked about this before, how my parents were not even, they were not even remotely open to the idea of me taking time off school and traveling before university. And then after university, I got to be, I was just too poor. I had like $30,000 in student debt. I wasn't going anywhere. I just had to come home and get a job. But I had a friend and when we graduated high school, she she took a year off and worked her butt off, saved all her money so that the following year she could do her traveling and then came home and went to university. And like I said, my parents were never open to that idea, but we are now, you know, I'm smelling 40. Um, we are no longer like there's 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 no way to tell that like I left high school and went straight to university. Like it's not like she got behind. You know what I mean? Like she's got a successful career and did everything. Okay. But yeah, my parents were not open to the idea of me doing that. And um, I always like slightly wish that I had just, you know, pushed back a little bit and said like, I, that's it. I want to travel because like I said, when I finished university, I was like, shit, I have no money. Mm. I can't. <laughs> I was really, I was really fortunate actually, because uh, when I went to university, there was uh, back in the late nineties, the the government at the time here had a tuition freeze, so university was dirt cheap. Wow, that's like I, fantastic. My, my my four year degree all in was about ten thousand dollars. Wow. And I, like I said, I came out with like 30,000 debt and that wasn't everything. That was just my debt because I did have some money saved. <laughs> yeah, when I went to university too, it was probably really cheap. I don't remember, man. That was fucking- Hey, old man. Mid- mid-90s. <laughs> I don't remember shit. Yeah. Smelling 40. Fuck off. <laughs> All right. 
Smelly. Yeah, what is your, what's what's smelling forty smell like? It's it's just it's creeping up. I my birthday is in what two weeks now. Whatever, kid. I'll be thirty seven. So I'm now accepting oh. that I'm closer to forty than I am. To- <laughs> Give me your lunch money, kid. How about that? <laughs> I'll be forty three this year. Nice. So. You don't look you don't look forty three. I don't know what forty three looks like, but it's not you. Man. <laughs> Oh. It's not you. Thank you. It's not you. Healthy, healthy living. Nice. Let's play. Let's play a game. Ready? I like it's ca- it's called it's called rapid fire. I'm gonna say a, I'm gonna say oh, something. Geez. I'm gonna say something, and you're gonna tell me you're gonna tell me what you think of it. Ready? Are you ready? Yeah. Reiki. Ugh. That was the answer. No <laughs> worries. That's the answer. <laughs> yeah. Amanda, you, you you give him one. You give him one. Rapid fire. Oh God, you're putting me on the spot. I didn't have. Okay, so oh, I was on the spot. You know. Okay, but let me let me hold on a sec. Let me just let me just kind of put a disclaimer on that. People. There's a place for everything. Right. Personally, my feeling on Reiki is I would never do that because I would want to be touched. Gotcha. gotcha. Are you sure there's a place for everything? You ready for mine? Oh. Oh, God. Astrology. <laughs> Interesting. Oh, okay. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. I, I, you know, to be honest, like, it's, it's funny. I, uh, I don't really know all the, all the astrological signs or anything, but I know what mine is. And people always, I'm a Gemini and people are always like, oh, you're such a Gemini. I don't know. I have a, means. I have a daughter that's a Gemini and astrology does fascinate me. I'm I'm not an expert. I read up on things. Like, for example, when I was pregnant the first time, my due date would have had my first child being a cancer. And from all the reading I did, I was like, nope, I cannot parent a cancer. She needs to be late. And she needs to be this late so that she's a Leo because my astrological sign apparently gets along really well with Leos. And you know what? Mark's a Leo. So mm. I just decided, yep, I want a Leo. And uh, she was two weeks late. She is a Leo. <laughs> yeah, we're hard to deal with us Leos. <laughs> I do all right. Ready for rapid fire? Continue yeah, cross fiber frictions. Yeah. Uh, they don't do what they're supposed to do. All right. Oh, my turn. We're, yeah, we're yeah, doing yeah. this. We'll do a back couple more. We'll do a couple more. This is fun. I had one until you said cro- cross fiber frictions. Uh, now I'll, I don't I'll give him another one. Man buns. <laughs> Sexy. Sexy. It says, no. it says the bald guy. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm envious of yours. <laughs> All right. Yoga. Relaxing. Right on. I dig this. We're going to keep this. We're going to do rapid fire now with a that whole I bunch know, of other Now guests. that I know we're going to do this more, yeah. I will be more prepared. <laughs> well, I just made that up right, right now. As we're wrapping this up, I'll give you a couple that we, we started doing some standard questions that we started asking our guests. Sure. What is your favorite thing to do? This, huh, this is interesting. This what is, is interesting. your favorite thing to do as a therapist on the table, like to do something for a client? What is your favorite thing to do, possibly technique-wise? Maybe not. I don't know. What's your favorite thing? Oh, <laughs> Uh, uh, so like maybe favorite area to work on? However you want to answer it. I won't lead you. Yeah. You know, I think I really enjoy, um, I really enjoy working on people's on, on necks. Mm. I really I enjoy working too. on the neck. I do too. And the neck is yeah. one of my favorite do you do areas lot, to work on. Do you do on. a lot of anterior neck work? Just I do. Yeah, yeah, I do. When I work on someone's neck, I work on someone's neck. So that, many people shy away from doing anterior neck work. That trainer that I was talking about, um, I didn't actually say she was tra- my friend that traveled. She's a personal trainer. She's the one that introduced me to Paul Check. Yeah. Um, I when I um, went on mat leave, she got a new therapist, and this, the new therapist is somebody that I knew. Okay. And she said to me, "Oh no!" She's like, "Amanda always does this thing, like in the front of my neck. I need you to do this thing." And she was trying to teach the other therapist how to treat her anterior neck. Nice. So yes, I love doing neck work. I just find it very. It's. Um... I know. I guess it's a little. It feel. It always feels like there's just there's more to do, and it's. It seems that you if you do it well, right, and people the results seem to be so profound. 
that's my experience, but that might be my bias coming through. I'm like, oh, someone's neck pain. I like it. Great. <laughs> You're in pain, but I love it. <laughs> our, our standard job interview question. Where do you see Uh-oh. yourself in five years? Oh. <laughs> uh, you know, I think over the, the during the last couple of years, I've made a transition a lot more away from clinical practice, more towards education. So I would imagine in five years, that transition would be even further. Hmm. Uh I've uh, just recently launched uh, my own um, subscription membership group right for massage therapists. It's called the Manual and Mo- and Movement Therapist Community. Nice. Uh, and so I'm really, my passion is trying to grow that to try and bring good quality monthly education uh, provided by a whole bunch of different uh, healthcare providers to um, to the massage and manual and movement therapists out there. So I, I think, yeah, in five years, I would be still have a practice. Like I'm a I'm part owner of the clinic I'm at. So I, I don't imagine I would throw that away, but um, I, I'm more passionate now about um, kind of the trying to educate and help and, and, and kind of promote a, a new or an updated way of, of practicing and thinking within our profession across the country. Nice. Uh, this next question, I want to see what the answer is going to be. You win, you win big money. Do you, do you ever play the lottery? Do you gamble? I do. You you gamble like well playing the lottery is gambling, but do you gamble gamble too? Like or? uh no, I don't I don't I'm not a casino gambler. No. Okay, so you win. The but lottery. I like playing poker with friends. Gotcha. You you win the lottery. You win big. Does does your five year plan still stay? Or are you like fuck it? I'm out of here. Uh no, mine I'm. I'm I'm out of here. See, finally, <laughs> finally. An honest therapist. An honest therapist. like, I'm rich. I'm going to treat for free and I'm going to open up this clinic and blah, 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 blah. I'm like, fuck off. If you won, <laughs> if you won 40 million, you're out the fucking door. You're even leaving yeah. your kids and your fucking family. You're gone. <laughs> well, tell me how you really feel, Mark. Yeah, I, I don't play the lottery. I'd be on a private jet to Maui. That's my favorite place on the planet. Oh, nice. Nice. I I've that. never I been that. to Maui. Let's do that. Oh my God. You got to go. You guys got to go. Let's it's do that. Best. Actually, fun fact, when I was pregnant the second time, we were like, oh, let's take a, a baby moon because we didn't do that the first time. I don't know if you if that was the thing when you guys had kids, but um, a lot of people do that these days where you go on a trip with your partner because then when the kids come, it's going to be a long time before you have any time together. So I was like, let's do this. But it was during that period of time where you couldn't fly anywhere because of Zika. Mm. So we had very limited options of where we could go. And one of the options was Hawaii. Um, You know, I was working with a travel agent friend and Hawaii was on the table. But I was like, oh, to like to take a flight that long. And we really only had five days. So like to spend like two, pretty much two full days flying. I was like, no. If if Thomas Magnum and Steve McGarrett are there, I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) You're such a dork. I guess for you guys, it's probably a 10 hour flight or something, right? I think it was 13 when I looked into it. It was really long. So I was like, this doesn't make any sense for us. So yeah, yeah, somewhere I've never been. So yeah, when COVID is a thing of the past, which hopefully it will be, um, let's do that. Okay, I can do that. I'm down with that. It's totally worth it save now it's it's the best place it's nice. gorgeous doing it um the next the next one that we got two more for you two more for sure. you you've mentioned a couple people before but maybe there's someone in the mind that you haven't mentioned someone who you've mentored with or has been an educator for you that has made a really big difference in in, in your approach who are you going to give the credit to yeah i <laughs> It's hard to narrow that down. I would say the one person who I really learned a lot from was Corey Blickenstaff, who's a PT down in Vancouver, Washington. Um, I really liked his approach and he's, he's very philosophical, but he, um, he's, he's one of the hosts of the pain science and sensibility podcast. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I would say he was really profound for helping me kind of reconceptualize and think about things. Uh, another guy who I learned a lot from early on about kind of the role of, of pain science and biomechanics actually was Greg Lehman, who you guys probably know, he's a mm-hmm. Toronto guy. Yeah. We, we brought him out here to teach courses a number of times in Victoria over the years. And uh, in my early days of trying to put all these pieces together, um, he was, he, 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 was really helpful because he was ahead of the game. Um, I'm going to actually say four people because those two were, were, everyone kind of had a different piece of the puzzle. Um, uh, the other two are, are two ladies in, um, Chicago, uh, Sarah Haig and, and Sandy Hilton. Um, they're both physical therapists. They were really, really helpful. I connected with them in San Diego and we had a lot of great chats uh, over wine and fire pits and kind of helping me kind of navigate um, and understand kind of what was going on with the stuff. And they were actually the two, I think, that probably pushed me the most to start teaching. I like that you have such a wide range of influences, because again, if we're saying that we want to have a more um, wide lens, a more global approach, then having all of these different influences and like incredible people who have helped you. Um, it's, it makes, it makes me believe that you are looking at things through a wider lens because you have so many different people who have given you some different perspective. Well, thank you. Yeah. I got one more for you. I got one more for you. You are very easily seen as the guy or one of the guys to go to for this type of stuff. You're aware of that, correct? Uh, I don't feel that way. I, but I will. Sure. How does that make you feel? Is that something you like? Is that something you don't like? Are you like, man, I'm just a humble dude and I just want to crawl into my space and do my work. And if it gets appreciated, then fabulous. And if it doesn't, then fabulous. Or are you kind of like, I need to show this to the world and everyone needs to know my name. I'm I'm making it sound in a really strange way, but (laughs) how 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 do you feel about now becoming the guy or one One of of the the guys? guys. How does that make you feel? It, it doesn't feel real. It feels weird to me sometimes. I mean, I get like my inbox and my Facebook messenger, I get inundated with questions and from stuff from people every day. And it doesn't feel, I feel like I'm being put on a pedestal that I'm I'm not sure how to handle, I guess. Cause when I first started doing this, I was just, I was just sharing information. I, I think I did my first blog in 2015 or 2016. And I started just doing some small lectures to some local people about information I had. And I didn't really expect that it would, um, that it would, you know, five, six years later, that it would be where it is now. Uh, It's been a slow, gradual transition for me. So I'm getting a little more used to it, but it seems like in the last year, it's really, um, I guess, I hate to use the word popularity, but it feels like it's really exploded. Hmm. Uh, So I... I like it because in in the aspect that I, I do like that people are interested in this material because I think it's really important. Um, so that's not really an answer to your question. Yeah, I like it. No, it's an answer. And I mean, yeah, I, I like it. I like it. I just feel, I feel that sometimes people like, they, they're like, they'll call me an expert or whatever. I'm like, I'm not an expert. I'm just a guy that's passionate about this material. Mm-hmm. I just, there's information that I think we sh- should know that I think helps us as a profession and helps the, our clients and our patients. So uh, that's the way I look at it. Well, it's also got to be somewhat validating for you that this did happen so organically. You know, you just started sharing your knowledge as tons of therapists do, and you can learn something from pretty much anyone. Everybody. But the fact that, as you said, you've really grown in popularity and people are coming to you with questions is 
it's got to be validating for you that what you're sharing is resonating with people and they, it makes sense to them and it's really sparking their interest in something that you you know you are so passionate about and you think is so important so that's nice that it it wasn't just like you came onto the scene like look at me i'm the expert in all of this and it's just sort of people are recognizing hey this eric guy knows his shit but does that <laughs> does that change at all like the way you approach people and the way you approach people in online space or the way you approach other colleagues at all or are you just still like kind of the this the same dude you were fucking however many years ago uh yeah i feel i don't i i, I try to i try to be the same as i always have and I, I try i'm i like to think i'm pretty humble about this stuff and like i'm the first one to admit that i there's lots of stuff i don't know mm-hmm. and what like and i and i'm happy and anybody that takes my course i'm always like the first thing we need to do is we need to recognize our biases and we need to accept that we don't know everything because once we realize we don't know everything it opens up our mind to learning more and every day I'm finding there's new stuff I don't know. And I'm like, this is great. Like, it's just changing my outlook on, 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 on things. So yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I think I, I like to think that, um, people, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty good to people. And I, I try to be, I try to be, you know, professional and, and, uh, not a dick, um, as, as much as possible. And I think that resonates well because, uh, because nobody likes. Not, I don't think. I don't think it's. Just, I don't think it's. I don't think I come across as being very threatening. You're an easy to talk to kind of guy. Yeah, yeah. I like it. I dig it. I dig it. <laughs> I dig it. It's a much easier way to get <laughs> to get your voice out there and to and to actually have your message heard by not being a fucking dick. In the last few years, is um, I should probably be embarrassed to admit this, but I'm not because I am totally comfortable to say that there's a lot of things I don't know and a lot of things I'm learning. But in the last couple of years, is when I learned the term soapboxing. <laughs> <laughs> Grandstand, soapbox. yeah, soapboxing, and um, I I do think that you know that can turn people off. So it's it's nice that you have, as you said, remained the same guy, and you just like sharing this information because it's important. And I'm glad that people are listening to it, including myself. You know, I've probably there's probably a ton of quotes that you can pull of me saying things like, "I don't understand these pain science people," but. You've made me understand these pain science people, Eric. Thank you. <laughs> oh well, hey, no problem. I'm I'm happy to uh, to keep that uh, the the positive pain science narrative going because it does get a bit of a bad rap sometimes. I think because people grandstand, right? People get up on their and, and on, on their, their soapbox, on their soapbox, <laughs> and they start and they start they start spewing facts and spewing science to people, and it's that's not how you're going to win friends. Yeah, I mean, there is people out there that have massive social media followings because they are um, abrasive. Yeah, absolutely. Because there's a market that gets people. But I, I think that, you know, you are, yes, you're bringing your message to thousands and thousands and thousands of people. But I think you're also turning people off from ever listening to what you have to say. Yeah, I agree. My approach is, is like, what if you're humble about it and you provide information in a non-threatening way, then it's it's more um it's easier to swallow digestible yeah right on it's been fun man thanks a lot i appreciate this uh, oh, we should you. mention one more time for anybody who missed this that eric will be presenting at the b3 conference which is being put on by ourselves at two rmts and a mic slash conad institute and connor collins so this is a virtual educational conference all for charity proceeds will be donated to food banks of canada can i can i say something on that we haven't said it yet so right now it's a it's a 20 dollar donation that will that'll get you admission to the conference yep and we do have some sponsors some of the sponsors for example we have notero, notero. formerly salt vault mm-hmm. um so one of the things that they're putting up is they're they're providing three 
one-year subscriptions for free. And so one of the things that we're going to start to leak out starting next week is anyone that donates above the $20 uh, will put you in a draw for, for that particular prize. And then we also have some of the other sponsors are going to put up some stuff as well, which we're going to start slowly leaking that stuff out. Yep. So if you go to uh, the website, conatinstitute.com slash B3conference, you can uh, donate. And like we said, it's a minimum $20 donation. Anybody who donates above that, and there is a button if you've already donated at the bottom of the page that says looking to donate more. Anyone who donates above the $20 will be entered in to win some of our prizes that are being um, so generously gifted by some of our sponsors. So Mark had already mentioned Notero is one of them. And uh, throughout the next few weeks, we will be dropping some more names and, um, you know, hopefully building some excitement around this. We've already had a lot of interest, a lot of registration. So if you haven't yet checked it out, go to the website. Um, the dates are March 27th, 28th, 2021. And Eric, as I said, will be presenting on Sunday the 28th at, what did I say, 1.30 Eastern Standard Time. And I can't stress Eastern Standard Time enough. We don't want you to miss out if you are not in our time zone. Mm -hmm. So go check it out and check out the other speakers. Eric, thank you for hanging out with us and, uh, this afternoon. If uh, if you thank if, you. if you are down and you don't mind people uh, getting in touch with you, anyone that really wants to get in touch with you, finds you a interesting dude and wants to hear more you have to say, you want to throw out some contact info for our listeners? Yeah, for sure. I mean, Probably the easiest way to get a hold of me is through, uh, you can go to my website, which is ericpurvis.com. So E-R-I-C-P-U-R-V-E-S. Uh, there's a contact me on there, or you can send me in a direct email, which is hello at ericpurvis.com. Uh, and I'm also on the Instagram and the Facebook. So you can um, <laughs> find me at Eric Purvis RMT on there is going to we'll get you to my, um, my uh, <laughs> professional He's contact, on, so. he's on the interweb. This he's guy, on the, he's he's on the he's on the interweb. <laughs> one, one Back more. when I was a kid, we didn't have the internet. <laughs> how how often does your does your surname get butchered, man? Just out of curiosity. Uh, well, I'm 43 almost. Um, so times that by how many days have I been alive? <laughs> uh, yeah, all the time. All the time. I've heard it all, so it's all right. Right on. This has been good. Thanks for hanging out. It's been fun. You guys have been listening to two massage therapists in a microphone. Perks.